Here's a question for you. Is a, is a social scene, uh, it, is it a thing encased in a built environment or in the people that, that populate that environment? The the pubs, the clubs, the galleries, the, the warehouses that, that cradle that moment in time. An award-winning book by our next guest grapples with that complexity. The book is Gay Bar, Why We Went Out. Uh, critical reading uh, for anyone interested in past, future of queer spaces. It's it's a complex book in itself. It's part memoir, part travelogue. It, it traces the cultural history of the gay bar via author Jeremy Atherton Lynn's transatlantic immersion uh, in gay hangouts of various description from pubs, the dark rooms, the dive bars. It was released in 2021 and it has it has garnered a host of plaudits. Uh, book of the Year uh, for Vogue, Art Forum, New York Times. Uh, it's also a book that British magazine Attitude calls exuberant and horny. Uh, so something clearly for everyone. Uh, <laughs> Jeremy joins us from his home in California. Jeremy, welcome. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me. Exuberant and horny, not just the book, but perhaps the, the gay bar itself. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely, I mean, from the first sentence, the book is pretty sexual. And um, it was important to me that I allowed that in because I think sometimes we wind up speaking about LGBT identities in ways that are, they wind up being quite anodyne and actually kind of move from sexuality itself. It's interesting because the, the notion of the gay bar is, of course, a, a thing which precedes that listing of, of queer identity, gay bar, gay men. Oh, for sure. I mean, I, the, the first section of the book, I'm in a, in a, I'm in a men's only space and um, kind of finding myself turned on in the environment, but also finding it a bit problematic, the door policy, um, mm. feeling a bit unsure about what, you know, what, how rigid their definition of what, what a man is and who gets to enter and that kind of stuff. But um, it was important to me that I approach the storytelling the way that we often do live our lives, which is with some conflicted feelings or finding ourselves in an environment that for a writer, I'm just as uh, inspired by the things that I find alienating or disappointing or of amusing course. or so on, rather than just finding some kind of utopia. And I think if this, if there's a search, meant to be a search for utopia in the book, it's never quite found, I don't think. Do you have a, a formative experience of you, you, your pet's first gay bar or, or, or queer space? Um, yeah, there's there's a, there's two that come to mind kind of by contrast. One, and they're both in the book. One is a creaky men's bar that had been around um, in West Hollywood, the seedy end of Santa Monica Boulevard in West Hollywood for years. And and I remember I had either just turned 21 or had just gotten my fake ID. So either way, I had celebrated, I can't remember, I had celebrated by going to this <laughs> bar and really kind of looking to see who would pick up, pick me up. You know, that, that night I kind of went out um, seeking attention, I think. And the only um, attention that I got was a kind of avuncular pat on the thigh and and, and the, the, the guy said something like, you're too good for this place, that kind of thing. So I didn't kind of achieve my, my goal, which was to um, have a, a snog in the corner, that kind of thing, you know? But, um, deflated by flattery. Of some sort. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and then by contrast, Another another one that comes to mind, and it's a to me, it's really a kind of a, a turning point in the book. It's about ten years later, so that would be in mid nineties, and um, about ten years later, 
I was going to a bar in San Francisco on Thursdays. It was a it was a bar called Aunt Charlie's, an old dive, and it had been a, around for probably since the the Barbary Coast kind of era of San Francisco, catering to sailors and laborers and things, and had just kind of sat still as a dive in the tenderloin. And on Thursdays, it was taken over by a DJ called Bus Station John, and the na- name of the night was Tube Steak Connection. And as you can imagine, it was it was very celebratory, very a return to disco, a lot of great obscure disco um, playing, and frankly, a kind of a return to sleaze, like a sleaze element. There was like vintage pornographic um, tear sheets from magazines on the walls, and the lights were covered with red film in order to give a kind of, uh, you know, a sleazy environment. And But on the dance floor, there was such a feeling of unification. And I think that Bus Station John really kind of thought that he wasn't just giving people a good party, but it was a bit of a history lesson. And I think the the, the really uh, the the difference in that decade between the bars is a kind of a bit of a reckoning with feeling more comfortable with how we live with aids mm. um feeling more aware of safe for sex and aware that it's um something that we were now living with rather than a kind of negative and fearful prism through which we we saw each other you know we were seeing each other sort of aware of the disease but not um kind of weighed down by it but yeah and it was just a really great party and it introduced me to a lot of great boogie 70s disco and boogie. <laughs> I, I wonder i mean and, and you mentioned the you know essential ingredients there of dance of music of the the vibe that creates but the the, the notion of, of a gay bar does that that hinge in some way on bricks and mortar is is it is it structural or is it things outside the built form yeah see in that place some of the things that really informed that experience was how small it was for instance mm-hmm. so the dance floor was so small that when i say that we were celebrating one another's bodies and all that it's like we couldn't really do anything else if we wanted to to dance you know so it became this like sexy sort of tin of sardines and um so it was a small dance floor it was dark i remember the floor creaking i remember the the record skipping you know because everybody was dancing so close to the dj and he played records um i mean and then this was before shazam so people weren't um, able to kind of like wave their phone in the air and try to identify what the great obscure track that Bus Station John was playing. In fact, if you asked him, he would um, kind of with kindness and just a hint of a kind of curmudgeonly attitude say that he wouldn't tell you that divulge the name of the t- track, you know. Um, it was like it was very much about being in the moment, um, I think. And then layered with the fact that you're in this historical place that's been around for decades. And um, I mean, I remember there was one window and it was covered up with a, um, you know, a claw foot machine where you try to get the stuffed animals out called Ye Old Gift Shop. And um, <laughs> once upon a time, that window would have been covered, right, as a matter of um, discretion, as a matter of keeping the, the men inside shielded from prying eyes. So I think it's a combination of of elements that aren't necessarily the the kind of design that I just described is something that would be very hard to cultivate in a in a in a deliberate way with a big budget and all that kind of stuff right mm. it had to happen over time it has to be a little bit incidental it has to be open to um serendipity uh, to like makeshift solutions about how you're going to get that um pornographic image to stick to the wall, that kind of thing, you know? I mean, I think that that kind of stuff makes for a, an especially festive atmosphere. 
in other instances, and I think again, especially sort of in the '90s and early 2000s, there there were there was a trend of um, bars looking very sleek. And um, the, the there's an urban scholar called Johan Anderson, and he calls them shishi bars. You know, that surfaces are wiped clean and hygienic. It's meant to uh, kind of as a sort of reaction of of AIDS, kind of telegraph that these are hygienic mm. environments. And, and you'll, you'll remember the men. The, the pinup men of that era looked very wholesome and hygienic and kind of untouchable too. That was the era of Marky Mark, you know, and everybody looked so epilated, like dolphins, you know, these kind of like uh, <laughs> untouched, like they were supposed to be sexy in this way, but it was this kind of untouchable, not very sensual, you know? Yeah, they were kind of as wipe clean as the as the bar surfaces. Dolphins is very precise. I mean, I mean in, in speaking of, of history and... Uh, in particular, I guess, of, of, of bars, of institutions that span the decades. I mean, that, that, that moment in that history of AIDS is transformative and, mm-hmm. and, and transform what is previously a very celebratory, vibrant and hypersexualized environment in, into something, well, it's a, it's a, it's a very sobering moment. How, how, does the, how does the gay bar move through that arc to a, a, a before and after? Yeah, I mean, you know, I came out in Los Angeles in the 90s and um, there was a bit of a feeling of um, emptiness. I mean, certainly a whole generation uh, above me had been so def- decimated. The population had been so decimated that, um, you know, I couldn't help but feel that I sort of lost potential big brothers, you know, people who would be Mm. sort of imparting their experiences to me and so on. And then my peers, you know, it's a generalization, but I think that we were a bit frigid with one another. I think we were a bit um, sussing each other out, um, which I think changed for me over time. And instead of that, um, you know, then we began to check each other out in a friendlier and um, more flirty way. Um, But that took time, you know. Nobody emerges into an ideal um, era, and I think it's very easy for any generation to feel that they're kind of late to the party. But, you know, the, the DJ I mentioned earlier, Bus Station John, he, he came up to me in San Francisco after he had read my book and said to me, you know, you say in your book that you were late for the party, but you had arrived for the after party, you know. Which has a great sadness in, it, in, in itself. I mean, but the bars themselves that, that operate on both sides of AIDS as an event... How, how are they transformed and, and, and how do they, specifically in, in the ways they create an atmosphere, how, how do they reassert themselves? I think it re- that really depends on the place. I mean, there was a big controversy in San Francisco in the 70s and 80s about, about whether or not to close down bathhouses, for instance. And you have competing visions which often share the best of intentions about what it might be to facilitate education through these spaces mm-hmm. and disseminate information um, as opposed to just kind of closing them down. So obviously there were a lot of parallels in the when I was finishing up the book and it was going to press, we were entering lockdown because of the pandemic. And that those kinds of competing visions about the solutions that you might take were very present in my mind. You mentioned a, a phone previously, uh, which is, of course, the other great turning point here culturally that 
finding people becomes not so much a thing of, of, of physical contact, but uh, of, of the internet. How, how does that change bar culture? You know, a lot of what I did when I wrote Gay Bar was revisit places that I used to hang out and had uh, fond feelings of, and in some cases, ambivalent feelings towards, and in some places, I really just didn't like them at all. But I just wanted to see where I was hanging out, what they had represented before my time there. And I think that becomes a very formative element about the way the the book works, that, you know, um, we kind of inherit these traces of people who have come before us. And one thing that I found um, fascinating was that one of the clubs that I used to hang out in Los Angeles, it was sort of a mixed club, and it had, you know, one of these venues where it had um, a retro disco night, and then a house music night, and a goth music night, and so on and so forth, right? I didn't even really think of it as particularly gay. And then I realized that it had this history. It had been a private gay men's club. And it had it had a real kind of darkness, a sort of S&M tinged uh, leather bar vibe. And it's the bar that's featured in American Gigolo when um, Richard Gere kind of finds himself there and it kind of is representative of like debauchery and, and sin and, and, and all that kind of stuff. But I was interested to notice that uh, around the time that I arrived in Los Angeles in the early 90s, that club began a phone line, like one of these, um, you know, in America would be like a 976 probe would be the phone number, something like that, a voicemail system. And, um, you know, I've never um, spoken to anybody who was involved specifically with the enterprise of that club, but it'd be interesting to see it. Obviously, they had their eye on in response to the AIDS epidemic and trying to figure out new ways of people meeting each other. It's almost like they invented this phone line as a precursor for apps or something like that. And another thing, um, too, just to mention uh, quickly about that bar that I just found really fascinating is before it was um, the private men's club probe, it was a gay club called Paradise Ballroom that catered mostly to um, Black and Latinx um, gay men in uh, Los Angeles. And they were dancing on the floor to great soul music stuff like um, Papa Was a Rolling Stone in ways that were um, predating what we now call Vogue. Um, it's been known as whacking and um, punking so, and posing. And so those dance moves, those those dancers were um, the guys who'd be going on weekends to audition to be on Soul Train. <laughs> and they. so if you look at the Soul Train line, a lot of the guys who dance down it are doing moves that are very familiar to us now that we would associate with voguing um, or with these related dance forms, whacking and posing and punking. And um, it was amazing for me to go back and see and look at these YouTube videos. I mean, I grew up watching reruns of Soul Train and it was such a formative thing for me to be brought into the Black music culture, funk and soul music. But it was, I, I didn't see that gayness and now here I go look back and see, wow, it was like hidden in plain sight, you know, broadcast across national television. Gay bars, of course, exist within a broader urban context and there's often uh, an uneasy tension around that. Perhaps you illustrate that point with a, with a story behind a, a London pub, The Georgian Dragon. Yeah, the Georgian Dragon is a much-missed bar in East London and it was rapidly gentrifying at the time, so... Um, you know, Shoreditch now, as we know, is a is a center for um, 
techno the technological industries and marketing and advertising and all that as well. And um, you know, you can get a penthouse apartment and everything like that. But of course, it was a it was a bit more rough around the edges. Um, we're talking about 2007 to 2012, and it was a great moment. It was a moment of um, uh, the the gay culture really overlapped with fashion culture. So mm-hmm. um, in other words, it was conspicuous. You know, um, that kind of queerness was really conspicuous on the streets. And what happened was a young man, a fashion student, um, was bashed. It was early in the evening, actually, by a group of local youth. And he was stabbed seven times, I believe. I mean, it was so severe that, you know, when he he went to the emergency room, the good people, you know, actually took his heart out of his body and <laughs> repaired it and, and returned it. I mean, it was a, a wow. definitely a near-death a, a near experience. And it put a scare into to those of us who hung out in that area, it was it was just around the corner from the Georgian Dragon, and the, the the complexity with which I deal with it in the book is that we had to be sure, or at least you know, speaking personally, I wanted to be sure that my sense of self protection didn't didn't result in in me um, making the kinds of um, generalizations or assumptions or uh, phobias, you know, towards um, the local youth who had been living there in many cases longer than, than we had. There were families who, who grew up around there and from their cultural and religious backgrounds didn't have a sense of um, our lifestyle, I suppose you could say, or where we were coming from, yeah. and um, it was a real, it was a real moment of clash. And um, these um, signs wound up being put around the neighborhood, "Gay Free Zone," um, quite hateful rhetoric in, in in neighborhoods that were quite obviously populated by a lot of um, LGBT people. But my, I, I'm not an activist, and so it's my position, I think, as a writer, to try to figure out what it's like to be present in a situation where you have all these conflicting views about what that neighborhood represents or who should be there. So a very tricky one and a very delicate one and, and, and very sad um, Mm. uh, to to think about um, how close these groups of people could be to each other and uh, so far away. Jeremy, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Author and essayist Jeremy Atherton Lynn, uh, author of Gay Bar, Why We Went Out. This is Blueprint on ABC RN. ABC RN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.